good morning. Good to see all of you today. And uh, as Pastor Dave mentioned, my name is Josh, one of the pastors here. And uh, just excited uh, to be here with you this morning. Um, you know, uh, mentioning so many uh, students getting baptized, and again, would also commend to you that opportunity to get plugged into our student ministry and serve. Uh, we need more workers. Uh, we, need, we need more people. And uh, not only there, Jesus said to pray for more workers to go out. We also need more people in, in our AV booth. We need people back there. So many uh, serve uh, week in, week out, uh, sometimes four Sundays a month. It's behind the scenes. And uh, if, if you're interested in that, we'd love to train you to help with that so we can keep doing our live stream and all that good stuff. But hey, welcome. Glad you're here. Glad all of you are with us online as well. As we get started this morning, uh, I've got a question I want to ask right away. How would you complete uh, this sentence? The Son of Man, Jesus, came, fill in the blank. What would you add into the blank? You know, the Son of Man was a title uh, from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament that Jesus loved to use for himself. And, uh, you know, I wonder, how would you fill in the blank then? So Jesus came... Preaching the word, maybe you'd say that. Maybe you'd say Jesus came to establish the kingdom. Maybe you'd say that, both of those are true. Jesus came to die on the cross, would you say that? How would you answer that question? How would you fill in the blank? You know, the New Testament fills that in three different ways. There's three different times that phrase uh, shows up in the New Testament. And one of them uh, says the son of man came Uh, Mark 10, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Uh, So there's one of them. Also, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I'll see that up here in a second. To seek and to save the lost in Luke 19. You know, um, there's a third one. Do you know what it is? that speaks of how Jesus came? Let me, let me tell you, the son of man came, has come, eating and drinking. Now, those first two uh, are statements of purpose. They're why Jesus came. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He, he came to seek and to save those who are lost. But the third, this one, is a statement of how, of how he came. He came eating and drinking. You know, and Luke isn't just talking here uh, when Jesus says this. He's not just speaking of, you know, Jesus came to eat because of sustenance, like he had to eat to stay alive. No, uh, he was talking about more than that because look at the whole verse. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. You know, Jesus was, this tells me Jesus was seriously into eating and drinking So much so that he was accused of doing it to excess. He was called a glutton. He ate too much. He was called a drunk. He he was with people drinking too much. You know, he he spent a lot of time this way. One commentator, even kind of tongue-in-cheek, says Jesus was the ultimate party animal because he was always with people eating and drinking. His mission strategy was a long meal, stretching into the evening. That's how he loved to do evangelism and get to know people and love them and care for them with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and 
maybe a small pitcher of wine. You know, Jesus was always eating with people. Listen to some of these examples. Luke 5, he ate with tax collectors and sinners in the home of Levi. We're going to see that one this morning. Luke 7, he's, he, was, he is anointed at the home of, of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus fed the 5,000. In Luke 10, he eats in the home of Martha and Mary. Verse chapter 11, he condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. And he keeps going and going and going and going to the point that uh, one guy by the name of Robert Karras, He's a monk and a professor of theology at St. Ambrose University, uh, said this in his book, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Like that's what he was just always doing. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. You know, I've got a lot of books in my Bible software library on my computer. In fact, uh, I was looking this week, over 10,000 books which I'll never read all of them, but I've got a bunch. And I don't say that to impress you. I just say that to say in those are many books that talk about strategy of ministry and evangelism and discipleship, and all of them are really good. But, but do you know how Luke sums it up? Jesus' strategy to reach people and to care for people? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Here's the big idea. Jesus spent time with people a lot of time with people who were far from God. He spent a lot of time with them. And uh, what we're doing right now, we're in a series called Pearl, where we're looking at how Jesus went about this, and we're looking at it, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, are saying, how do we do that same thing? Because Jesus says, just like I was sent into the world, I'm sending you into the world, and we're sent to love people and invite him to follow Jesus with us. Now, on the front end, let me just say this. If, if you're uh, new with us this morning, you haven't put your faith or your trust in Christ, you're watching and the same thing for you, uh, you need to know I'm speaking primarily today to people who have trusted Jesus and to whom Jesus has given a mission to go out and love people like he loved them. So you just get to kind of listen in on our family discussion today. Sound good? Um, but let me give you uh, kind of the strategy that Jesus used, and, and that's the title of our series, PEARL. It's just an acronym to help us remember it and put it into action ourselves. First, pray. We saw this last week. We're to pray for them. Chances are you know someone or someones who are far from God, who need Jesus. And what you need to be doing is praying for them. That's, that's the first part. The second step in this strategy that's really accessible to any follower of Jesus, because we're all commanded to do it, is to eat with them. We're going to see that today. We're going to see Jesus eating and drinking, and it was a brilliant part of his strategy. Next, uh, next week, we're going to talk about asking questions, asking questions of people. See, if, if you love somebody and, and you want to be uh, obedient in telling them about Jesus so that they could know him and love him too, uh, you need to pray for them, you need to eat with them, spend time with them, ask them questions, and remember in your mind the whole time, you're sent to be their friend. You're not sent for them to be your project. So ask questions. Get to know them. That's what Jesus did. He was a, a friend of sinners, wasn't he? He was a friend of sinners. So to do that, you gotta ask questions. You know, Jesus actually, when he's spending time with people in the New Testament, he asks more questions than he gives answers. Read the Gospels and check it out sometime. Uh, next, uh, give an opportunity, maybe you'll have that opportunity to reveal your story. That's the R in our acronym. Reveal your story. How'd you meet Jesus? What has he done for you in your life? 
Let, let me tell you. And then finally, love. We're sent to love them, to, to love them tangibly throughout the whole process, to love people no matter, we say this, right? No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter where they're from, no matter what's been done to them, no matter the color of their skin or their intellect or their age or anything about them, we're sent to love people. Do you agree? Yeah, right on. So here's the deal. Uh, Today, we're looking at that second letter of eat, eat with them. And uh, Jesus used meals. Jesus used meals. You know, Jesus used meals as a key piece of his evangelism strategy but he also used them for so many other things. Consider for a moment the importance of meals in the Bible. Now, if you're not hungry yet, you're going to be by the time you leave. So it's a good opportunity for you to find somebody, take them out to eat today, because you'll be hungry by the time we're done. But the Bible talks about meals all over the place. And, you know, God invented meals to be the centerpiece of human relationships. It was his idea to make food. Not only to create food, but to create it so that it tastes good and you'd want to eat it. It was his idea to make eating a communal thing to where you you sit around with other people. And I mean, if if you have people over to your house to to hang out or to watch the game, what's almost always on the counter? Something to eat, right? It's just part of how God has made us to interact with one another. Meals were created by God to just play a very important role in our lives. Uh, Think about this. Here's here's some ways that God uses meals in scripture to communicate something to us. Uh, In in covenants, meals were often part of covenants that God had made with his people. They were an integral part of weddings. I was at a wedding last week. Uh, Guess what happened after it? A big meal. Lots of good food. And people just hanging out celebrating together. Uh, God's people would celebrate their victories over their enemies. How? With a meal. Uh, God commanded that meals would, should, be show, should be used to show love to strangers. That's, that's the term hospitality. Do you know, uh, a little rabbit trail here. Hospitality in the New Testament is uh, this Greek word, uh, philozenia. Uh, philo, philo, meaning love, and xenia, meaning stranger. Love the stranger. Sometimes as Christians, we might think of hospitality as showing love to the people we we love and know, showing hospitality, opening up our homes. But you know, uh, biblically speaking, hospitality is showing love to the stranger. So it's it's really less a part of fellowship and much more a part of evangelism, biblically speaking. Meals were part of celebrating Passover, offering sacrifices. And uh, one last point, In the handful of small details we know about heaven from scripture, guess what shows up a couple times? Yeah, food. Uh, Heaven starts with a huge feast. It'll be awesome. And in the middle of heaven, we read in Revelation that there's a tree that has fruit on it, and this fruit is ripe and good to eat, and it changes every month. Fruit of the month club for eternity, fresh off the tree. Did, did God just do that kind of tongue-in-cheek? Did he do it not, you know, not really caring or just kind of, oh, that'd be kind of cool? I don't think so. I think he does these things because he's created us in such a way that relationship is built over meals. And Jesus used meals towards that end. Uh, for example, in Jesus' life, do you know 
Uh, his first miracle, some of you know this, where it happened. It happened at a wedding. And what he did was there was a big feast and they ran out of wine. So he told the workers, go fill up these huge vats with water and then serve it to them. They're like, okay, they're not gonna like that though. They've been drinking wine. And they get it, he turns it into wine. And it was good wine. And then um, he, he multiplies food to feed people who were hungry after he taught them outside for hours on end. Uh, he taught often even over a meal, uh, like at Mary and Martha's house in, in Luke chapter 10. He celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He, he reconciled with Peter after Peter had betrayed him. Do you know when Jesus reconciled with him? Right after breakfast, right after they had breakfast together. Uh, on numerous occasions, Jesus spent time with the lost, with people who are far from God over a meal. Why did he do that? Well, I would submit to you that it was brilliant because Jesus in his strategy knew how, how meals help us connect with one another. In fact, if, if you want a good book, a, a really readable book uh, to read about how Jesus used meals in his ministry, I'd commend this one to you. It's called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. And uh, let me just read one thing that he talks about because not only were meals useful in Jesus' day, but guess what? Maybe you've drawn the, connected the dots already. They're useful for us too in really getting to know someone. Think about your own home as I read from Chester's book. He says, think about your dining room table or kitchen table. You got it in mind? What dramas have been played out around this simple piece of furniture? Day by day, you've chatted with your family. You've, you've shared news, telling stories, poking fun. Values have been imbibed. Guests have been welcomed at your table. People have found a home. Love has blossomed. Perhaps you reached across the table to take the hand of your beloved for the very first time. You think about that. You, you fall in love and you go on a date and what do you do? Eat, <laughs> right? You go out to eat. Perhaps you remember important decisions made around the table. Perhaps you were reconciled with another person over a meal. Perhaps your family still bonds by laughing at the time you forgot to add sugar to your cake. <laughs> Meals are the centerpiece by God's design of so many of our relationships. Food is. You probably have stories that way too. Now, why would God and why would Jesus in his earthly ministry as God, as a human being, uh, use meals to that degree. Well, here's, here's why. Meals slow you down. They slow us down. Meals absolutely slow us down to deepen relationships. They, they force you to slow down. You can only inhale so much in so much time. You have to engage, too, if you sit down for a meal with somebody on more than just whatever your agenda is to talk with them about. You're gonna end up talking about more than that. You know, um, in fact, even at our board meetings, to give you a little insight into the leadership at our church, for the last 10 years or so, before every board meeting, do you know what we do? We eat. Because these guys are coming from work, they're hungry, grumpy. I'm hungry, grumpy, we eat. And guess what happens when we eat? We don't talk about the agenda yet. We, uh, we share stories about our day, sometimes heavy things, 
sometimes uh, inconsequential things. We'll, we'll maybe study a passage of scripture together as we're eating. But you know, uh, in that time, in those connections, I can't remember a board meeting in the last 10 years since we started doing that where there wasn't uh, just a, a good deal of laughter. Uh, meals help us connect with one another. You know, in fact, that's why we have coffee on a Sunday morning. Because it's really hard for you to move too fast with a hot cup of coffee, isn't it? You gotta slow down. And it gives you something to do with your hands so you can slow down and actually engage in a conversation with somebody. But this is all by God's design. Meals slow you down, they force you to, and they help you deepen relationships. See, Jesus used meals, and you know how he used them primarily? To connect with people. That's how he used meals all throughout his ministry. He used them to connect with people. He used them to connect with his friends, right? Like at, like at Passover and other times, and those whom he was, who was really close to and was discipling. But he, he also used meals to connect with new friends, to connect with people who were far from God. I, I think I could make the case to you from the New Testament, that Jesus spent more time with people, and and often over a meal, spent more time with people who were far from God than with those who thought they were close to God. Did you catch that? I think Jesus spent more time with people who were far from God over a meal than he did with those who thought they were close to God. Because he used it to connect. Uh, That's why uh, we already said he was accused of being a glutton and a a drunkard. He spent so much time with people over meals. He was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You'll see in a moment why that was such uh, such a scathing rebuke of him. He's a glutton. He's a drunk. But you know, Jesus wasn't the only person who spent a great deal of time with people far from God over a meal. Do you know who else did? The Apostle Paul spent time with people who are far from God. In fact, uh, we started looking at his ministry in Acts chapter 17 last Sunday, and we're gonna kind of pick it up where we left off this morning. Um, in, in Acts chapter 17, let me just catch you up. In the book of Acts, uh, Paul, who is a really religious guy, uh, realizes that he has never trusted Jesus, and so he does. And he becomes a Christian, and Jesus forgives his sin, and Paul is so excited about this fact, moving from his religiosity to this relationship and friendship with Jesus that he can't shut up telling other people about it. And so uh, he gives his life to it. And, and the book of Acts records three major journeys that Paul goes on to tell people about Jesus and to plant new churches. Well, in Acts chapter 17, we're in the midst of his second of these three journeys. And, and he's gone from a city called Thessalonica, uh, where he was preaching and teaching the word there, and these people got really upset with him about it. So he moved on to a new city called Berea, except those uh, guys who were causing trouble in Thessalonica heard about it and they followed him there and stirred up more trouble. And so he escaped by sea to the city of Athens. And he left uh, some of his friends who were on this journey with him, Silas and Timothy, behind in Berea. And we picked it up last Sunday where Paul arrives in Athens after traveling there by sea. And we read this, that, that Paul then was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. He was waiting for them at Athens. But while he was there, Athens, by the way, I should tell you, it was an incredible city. It was a center of culture, center of architecture, center of of philosophical thought. There was all kinds of cool stuff happening in Athens. It it was a big city, and Paul was there. 
And he gets there and he begins to explore while waiting for his friends, but then look what happens. His spirit was provoked within him. In other words, he was moved deeply when he saw that the city was full of idols. Idols are just anything, uh, sometimes even good things, that take the place of, of God in our lives. And we give worth and value to them instead of to God who truly deserves it. Well, Paul's provoked when he sees the city was full of idols. And we get to verse 17, we, we read then, so uh, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Or uh, your translation might say the God-fearing Greeks. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Well, last Sunday we, we started with, uh, with Pearl and we, we looked at the letter P for pray and talked about praying and how the Spirit moves something in us and we begin praying for those who are lost. Just like Paul was provoked by the Spirit, right? When he saw people in need of a Savior. And uh, then we get to verse 17 and I just want to draw your attention to a few words here. First off, the word so. So. Your translation might even say therefore. When you see therefore in the Bible, you ask yourself, what's it there for? It points back to verse 16 where we read that Paul's spirit was provoked. He he had seen that these people were far from God and because of that, emotion was stirred in his heart. It, it, It wasn't, he was really angry about it and angry with them. No, he was, the spirit provoked compassion in him. These, these people need Jesus. It was a love for them that the Spirit drew in him. And because of that, we read, so, Paul does something about it. Hey, you know, if, if you're doing this journey with us, maybe you're doing the, the daily devotional and there's more of them available if you, you still need to pick one up on your way out the door, um, Let me warn you, if you start praying for somebody who's far from God that you know and that you love, guess what's going to happen? God might change their heart, but guess whose heart he's probably going to change first? Yours. And he's going to stir something up within you to where you are going to be faced with a decision. Do, Do I pursue them in relationship? Do I try to eat with them so that I can develop this friendship and have the opportunity to share things with them about Jesus? Or do I just kind of push it aside and ignore it and let it still just kind of eat me up but not do anything about it? Well, Paul did something about it. He prayed, he developed concern, he he was provoked by the Spirit, and then he took action. Well, what action did he take? Uh, Well, let's keep going. He reasoned. He reasoned. You know, that word uh, in the Greek, if you could see the original text underneath it, is dialogamai. Does that sound like an English word you know? Dialogue. So literally, Paul, uh, so Paul dialogued with them. He started conversations. He had discussions with people. He was speaking uh, with them and trying to persuade them to put their faith in Christ. But, you know, even uh, at a core level, Below that, I believe Paul was engaging just simply in conversation to know them. And I'll I'll explain why here in a moment. He wanted to dialogue with people. I wonder, how about you? If you're a follower of Jesus, do you seek out people who are far from God to to dialogue with them, to talk to them, to be their friend? That's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. Well, then let me highlight another word. Paul does this in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, but also 
in the marketplace. See, he started with people um, who, who uh, did have some interest, who did know a little bit about God, but then he even went to those who were far from God. And, you know, this marketplace in Athens, uh, if you, you could go there today and walk through the same place that Paul walked through, that marketplace still exists. Now, not as a marketplace, it's just ruins now, and much of it has been destroyed or deteriorated over the last couple thousand years, but it's still there. And uh, the word there for marketplace is agora, and it was the most popular place in the city of Athens. And that ancient agora that Paul went to, it can still be found, and it was a marketplace. You, you might think of it like an outdoor mall. It was a, it was a ped mall. And, uh, or, or maybe like a mall courtyard of a pedestrian mall. Uh, you know, you can walk through the pillars that mark the entrance to this place. You can walk down some of the, the, the main streets in, in the Agora where uh, in, in the midst of these columns would have been storefronts and other things uh, where you could buy all kinds of different goods. Just like at the mall today. And also like the mall, do you know what else you could buy there? You could get some food. You could get some food in the Agora. You could get food that you could take home and prepare yourself or you could actually even buy food that was already prepared and eat it there as you were going about. The Agora had a food court. And, and just to help you remember maybe a little bit what that word Agora means, maybe you've heard of agoraphobia. People, uh, uh, we might think of it, people who are afraid to leave their home. But, but really it means people who are afraid of crowds. And there would have been crowds at the Agora. Just like there's crowds at the mall and there's crowds other places in our culture where where people naturally gather. Those are the places Paul went. He went where people who were far from God were, to love them and to befriend them. And he picked it tactically to interact with them. But notice, here's another word. Uh, he went to the marketplace, how often? Every day. He went every day. He went to the marketplace every day. Or in the NIV, if you have that translation, it might say day by day. Because people went there every day. Day after day after day. And you think about it, if Paul went there day after day, day by day, eventually these people who were strangers started to become acquaintances and then maybe started to maybe know his order when he placed it. And they started to become friends and trust developed and things were, discussions were had of things that were much more meaningful than just, yeah, great weather today, huh? And we read about that. We'll see that in the coming weeks. But I guess the thing I would, I would say is that Paul, over time, that quantity time led to some quality time with people. You know, have you ever heard about people longing for quality time? I think quality time is a little bit of a myth. Because really, quality time comes out of quantity time. It's a natural byproduct of quantity. Because um, here's the problem. When was the last time you scheduled quality time with someone and it actually happened? The quality part, not the time part. It's, it's pretty hard to get on the calendar, isn't it? But do you know what's easy to get on the calendar? Just a lot of time with people, day after day, day by day. And out of that naturally comes quality time. This, this takes place in relationships and marriages and family dynamics with kids and parents. I mean, I think of my own dad who passed away a number of years ago now. Uh, one of the ways that I remember uh, 
one of my best memories of quality time with my dad was about 5.30 to 6.30 every weekday morning. I had a paper out from the time I was in third grade up through uh, probably my sophomore, junior year of high school. And uh, in the winter months when it was really cold or if it was really rainy one day, uh, my dad would offer to, to help me. And he'd be up with me and even help me fold papers because he had to kind of roll them up and stick them in a bag or whatever to deliver them at that time. And I mean, he got to read the paper for free every day. He loved it. So then he'd hop in the truck and we'd drive around town and I'd deliver papers and I'd hop back in the truck and go out and hop back in. And there were so many different times just quality time happened with my dad. But do you know, if he had come to me and said, Josh, I'd love to spend some quality time with you. I'd say, all right, let's do it, dad. How about 5.30 tomorrow morning? I'd have said, dream on. I'm gonna be sleeping. Let's, let's, how about if we shoot for maybe 11.30? It's, it's really hard to schedule, isn't it? But that quantity time led to quality time. Listen, it'll be the same in your relationships with people who are far from God. Do you, do you wanna develop the opportunity to have a quality, deep relationship? Spend some quantity time with them. Quality time is a byproduct of quantity time. And in fact, this is uh, what Jesus does. Uh, We see Paul do it here in the Agora every day, day after day, he went to the marketplace. But we also see it with Jesus spending quantity time with people who are far from him over meals. Let me give you just one example. In Luke chapter five, uh, Jesus was in Capernaum. Uh, It was kind of his home base for his ministry. It's right on the north shore of the Lake of Galilee. And after he went out, uh, he saw a tax collector named Levi. Uh, Levi also, he goes by Matthew and other gospels. He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Well, um, a couple things here just briefly. Levi's sitting at the tax booth. Some translations might say toll booth or the tax office. Uh, Levi would have been collecting taxes and customs and duties on goods that came through Capernaum more likely than not. He might have been even uh, intercepting guys as they came off the lake after their fishing trips to get them to pay their taxes to Rome. And as a tax collector, sometimes in that day they were actually called tax farmers because uh, they weren't necessarily like bigwigs with a position of authority in the Roman government. They were contract labor of the Roman government to where uh, the Romans wanted to collect taxes from people in their empire. And so they would hire people like Levi, Matthew, to collect taxes. And they would say, hey, you collect the taxes that are due to us, send send it to us. And uh, for your payment, just collect whatever else you want above and beyond that and just keep it for yourself. This is why tax collectors were so hated. They were seen as a double agent in cahoots with Rome, but also they'd take advantage of people many times and, and collect more money than they really needed. That's why another tax collector, Zacchaeus, remember him? After he comes to faith, what's he do? He promises to give back to everyone. I think tenfold, is that right? Memory serve? A, a, a good number of what he had received from them. I might have that wrong. But, but Levi's a tax collector. He's sitting there in his tax booth, a tax farmer, harvesting money for Rome. And, and Jesus uh, comes to him, says, follow me. And look what he does. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Think about the things Levi had to leave. A lucrative career for one, right? Let's be honest. He was probably making bank. And no chance to ever get that career back. 
and maybe no chance for anyone else to hire him because of that career that he had in his past. He leaves it all to follow Jesus because he recognized Jesus was worth more, didn't he? He was in search of that fine pearl and he found it in Jesus. So uh, Levi, verse 29, uh, after this, Levi made him a great feast in his house. He made a great feast for Jesus. And check out who else was there. There there was also a large company of tax collectors and others. Uh, Other sinners reclining at table with them. Reclining at table just means that's how they ate. They didn't sit down at the kitchen table. They had a table that was low with pillows propped up against it and you'd kind of lean over and dip your food out and just relax and recline at table together. That's how they ate. It was kind of intimate. And that's what they were doing. And who was there? Who was, Jesus was there. And, and hey, what was this really? This was a party. Let's be honest, Right? Levi met Jesus, he becomes a Christian, and he throws a party. He throws a party, and he invites all his buddies, and they're all there. And Jesus said, oh, I can't go to parties, sorry, you guys have fun, I'll see you next week, Levi. No, he hung out with them the whole time. And uh, now, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, and they were like, Why does he eat? Well, Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat with people like that? I thought you uh, were a teacher, were a rabbi, were were a religious guy. How can you hang out with them? What are you thinking? Well, uh, to help you understand maybe some of the Pharisees' angst, because uh, at root, the, the Pharisees were very misguided for sure, but they really did at a heart level want to please God. They just went about it in some really wonky ways. So let me see if I can illustrate to you some of their angst. Now we have people in our church who view things politically from different perspectives, so I'm not gonna name any names. But let me just say this to you. you. You probably lean one way or the other. And because of that, you might look at somebody on the other side, a particular politician with a little bit of angst. Who's that politician on the other side from you? I know I'm just, I'm just stirring it up today, aren't I? Uh, who, who's that, that man, that woman for you that you just go, it just makes your blood boil? You got them? Maybe you're thinking of a few of them. Now, let's say this afternoon you get home and you're, you're scrolling through Facebook, waiting for dinner, and all of a sudden pops up a picture of that politician at a party. And guess who's there with him? It's me. You see me with that guy or that woman you can't stand at a party, eating, drinking, and all of their politician buddies in the background that you also maybe can't stand. What's your thoughts of me in that moment? Feeling it? That's how the Pharisees felt when they saw Jesus at the tax collector's house, at the party. And and so they're like, Jesus, why are you with them? And Jesus answered them. This is key. He said, well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, there was purpose in Jesus in these relationships, 
was that he would develop friendship with them, that they would come to know him and, and turn their life around. But, and then the Pharisees knew that Scripture is clear, there would be a big party in the end when people repent and come to Jesus, but their, their problem wasn't that. Their problem was the guest list. And they wouldn't have ever wanted to go to those people. They're too far from God. Just, I don't like them. I wonder, um, who is it for you that, that you need to go after that's far from God? And if you don't go, who will? Who will? Now, I should give one word of caution here. Because everything we've talked about today, this principle of eating with those who are far from God and spending time with them can be taken to an extreme. And I would just say to you, this, this one word of warning before, two extremes actually, one or the other, you'll see. I would say this, one, don't be a fool. Two, don't be a Pharisee. Here's what I mean by that. You know, the fool, there's, there's great danger for you. Hear me, friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is great danger for you if you immerse yourself entirely in people who are far from God and you don't pursue and maintain close relationships with those who know Jesus. If you don't maintain strong friendships, like in a life group, for example, uh, with, with, with people who influence you in the right direction, you're in danger. So don't take this, you know, eat with them as, oh, I'm just gonna go party with non-believers all the time. I'm gonna hang out at the bar all week and skip life group this, this Wednesday. That wouldn't be very wise. You'd be a fool. And you'd be misapplying this principle. In fact, in Corinthians, Paul writes, he says, don't be fooled by those who say such things because bad company corrupts good character. Or in Proverbs 13, walk with the wise and become wise, but associate with fools and you'll find yourself in trouble. So there's that extreme where you can ignore having deep relationships with people who are close to God. But you know there's another extreme or you can go way to the other side and be a Pharisee and never have any relationship with people who are far from God because it's too much work. And they've made their bed, let them lay in it. See, that's not godly either, is it? The danger of the Pharisee is the other side. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were known by their stubborn refusal to associate with anyone far from God. And in their desire to be holy, they would refuse to even talk to an unholy person. So when Jesus did, and he actually spent time with them and ate with them and drank wine with them, they couldn't stand him. So do you see? Don't be a fool and go so far that you ignore your core relationships with those who know Jesus and don't be a Pharisee to where you totally ignore people that God has sent you to, to love and to befriend. As we wrap, let me just say this. Jesus used meals to connect with people and he did so to let them see who he really is, to see who he really is. You know, if you connect with somebody over a meal, they're actually gonna see who you really are. Do you know that? They are. They're going to see who you really are. They're going to see your diet, what you really eat, how much, 
If you have them at your home, they're gonna see the messy bathroom. They're gonna see the pile of laundry when they accidentally open the closet looking for something else that was shoved in there. (laughs) You're laughing because you know it's true. Uh, They might witness some unfiltered family conversations if they come over to eat with you. They're gonna see the weird way you touch your spoon to your chin every time before you take a bite. (laughs) They're gonna see you for who you really are. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? But you know, let me just say this. Uh, Meals require you and force you even to be yourself. Befriending people, inviting them, loving them. And even as yourself, if you feel like, well then if I'm myself though, Josh, This whole thing isn't going to work. They're never going to trust Jesus when they really see me for who I am. Let me flip the tables on you. Maybe if they really see who you really are, that you too need Jesus, he'll become so attractive to them that they won't be afraid to trust him themselves. That's not to say you're not to grow and change. It's just to say, Having that meal with them reveals who you are and and hopefully it points them to Jesus and their need for him because of your need for him. Close with this story. It it reminds me of a young salesman. And this guy was kind of climbing the ladder. He's kind of a young hot shot. He had made a lot of good sales and um, he was closing in on a pretty big fish. He He had worked on this for a couple months in his business and He got right down to the end and he couldn't close the deal. He couldn't make the sale. And the customer uh, left the table. Well, this young salesman was was pretty disappointed, obviously, as you can imagine, and um, felt a little bit ashamed and he went to his sales manager and they, they talked about it and he lamented. And finally, at the end of their conversation, he just told him, he said, you know, uh, this guy did to his manager, he said, You know, I guess it just kind of proves, doesn't it, that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the sales manager sat there and thought for a little while before saying to him, you know, but your job isn't to make him drink. Your job's to make him thirsty. See, that's evangelism. Your job isn't to save people. That's the Spirit's role. That's God's role. Your job isn't to clean them up and fix them up. The Holy Spirit does that by the power of his word. You know what your job is? Your job's to make them thirsty, to make them long for what you have, to see how it's changed you and give them hope that he could even change them. In a moment, we're gonna see a handful of students who have been changed, who put their faith in Jesus They're gonna get baptized, they're gonna climb in the water and uh, symbolizing that they've been cleansed and made clean. They're gonna go under the water just like Jesus was buried. They're gonna rise from it just like he rose from the grave and walks in newness of life and gives us that life. And um, as you watch this, maybe if you're still far from God, uh, my prayer for you even right now is that you'd see this and, and you'd realize in your heart, that's something I need. I'm thirsty for that. And you can trust him today simply by faith.
by putting your faith and your trust in Christ. So I'm gonna pray right now, and then we're gonna celebrate with these students as they get baptized, and uh, we'll wrap up singing right after that. Sound good? Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, apart from him, we, do, we, we have no hope. No hope. I have no hope. Jesus, thanks for uh, the example you give us, the way you used meals to connect with people. And, and not that there's anything magic about a meal, but, but it was your heart and your longing to connect with messed up people like me. And to show us, Jesus, who you really are, that, that your heart is for us, that you love us, that it's tender. And that when we sin, you have compassion on us. And you long for us to be changed and to be made new by the power only you can give. Friend, if, if you've never trusted Jesus and you hear my voice, it's really simple. You can just simply say by faith, uh, Jesus, uh, in your heart, I, I need you. I, I realize I'm, I'm thirsting for that. I, I want that new life. Would you take me and change me and make me new? And he promises if you believe in your heart that he died on the cross for your sins, that, that he was raised from the grave by the power of the Spirit and, and confess it with your mouth, believe it, you too will be saved. Jesus, thanks for these students who've trusted you and uh, we just pray your great blessing and encouragement in their life and I pray your encouragement to all of us just as we see their testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.